Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 219 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I got to thank you for an incredible September. Can't believe we're into October already. Some of you love fall. It's your favorite season. Mine, for the record, is summer. And uh, man, we had a great September, though. I got to tell you, thank you to everybody who made the launch. My new book, Didn't See It Coming, so amazing. It is still a number one bestseller a month later, which is incredible. And you can learn more at Didn't See It Coming book. And just thank you so much for sharing your stories. Uh, the book seems to have a huge impact on people emotionally and spiritually. And that is what I was praying for. So you can check it out at didn't see it coming book.com. Man, I'm excited about today's guests and the month ahead. So we have Scott Harrison. He is the CEO and founder of Charity Water. He's my guest today. And we recorded this podcast live in Charlotte this summer at the Push Pay One Day Summit. It's an incredible conversation. Scott's a fascinating individual. He's been recognized in Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 list. He's on Forbes Magazine's Impact 30 list and recently was voted number 10 on Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, which is fascinating. You'll see why. We talk about how to court high-capacity donors, a novel model for charities in terms of funding, and a lot about his personal journey. So you're going to love it. He's got a brand new book out called Thirst, which releases today. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And hey, I want to welcome a couple of brand new partners onto the podcast today. We are going to hear from Push Pay, already mentioned them. And then, uh, you know, healthcare costs are really out of control. And so over this month, I'm going to be bringing you conversations with the co-founder and the president of Remodel Health, Justin Clements. And we're going to talk about how you can actually as an individual and then you as an organization can save money on healthcare costs. So here's interview number one with Justin. And I asked him, you know, healthcare costs seem totally out of control. What are some things that someone with a deductible can do if they want to save some money? Here's his answer. If you can keep from hitting your deductible, then you win. So trying to, to shop for healthcare services and using consumer sources and, and talking to your doctor, asking if you can pay cash with an, maybe an HSA card, doing those type of things and just asking good questions and doing research. Um, so hitting your deductible doesn't have to be the path, right? You just don't go in and get whatever service and just say, man, I hope, hope that that didn't cost too much. We're going to drill down deeper on some specifics that you can do in upcoming episodes. But if you want to learn more, I want to encourage you to head on over to remodelhealth.com. They are a partner, a trusted partner of Brotherhood Mutual and MediShare. And they save their clients an average of 34% annually on your payroll healthcare costs. That's crazy. Imagine what could be done with those savings reinvested into your mission. So visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to find out more and you'll receive a free quote and a buying guide today. So remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Find out more, you get a free quote, free buying guide and save up to 34% annually. And speaking of savings, um, what are you doing for mobile giving? Did you know that the average American spends about four hours a day on their cell phone? I uh, had a coaching call 
recently with a couple of young church planners. They've got an incredible church. And I asked them, hey, what percentage of your church, which is almost all 20-somethings, is uh, giving digitally? And you know what the answer was? Less than 50%. I'm like, guys, that's why you have a cash crisis. Like, you get that, right? Like, that's why you're out of money. Your church is missing out if you're not thinking about a mobile strategy to reach members online and on their phones. And that's exactly what PushPay does. It provides mobile apps and enables digital giving that helps you engage your audience all week long, not just on Sundays. And they're experts at this technology. PushPay has the largest customer base in the entire industry. They're working with more than 7,000 churches around the world. Last year, get this, they facilitated $3 billion, that's with a B, dollars in contributions. It's no wonder so many organizations trust PushPay. You can visit pushpay.com to learn more and see what everyone's talking about. Talk to an expert and tell them I sent you. So just head on over to pushpay.com and you'll probably discover that your church increases giving when you go mobile. And now let's move over to my interview with Scott Harrison, CEO and founder of Charity Water. Now, what you need to know is uh, prior to the interview, we played back for the audience assembled a video uh, that uh, really is a bio of Scott's life and the story of Charity Water. So if you want to watch that video, it's in the show notes, just kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 219. It has almost 200,000 views now on YouTube but uh, in it, it tells the story of Scott's mom developing this rare autoimmune disorder. So that's a little bit of background you need to know. Otherwise, the first few minutes of the interview won't make as much sense. But we had just watched this. So you can watch it uh, now. You can watch it later. It's all in the show notes or you can Google it yourself. It's one of the top hits if you just uh, look at Scott Harrison Charity Water on YouTube. Anyway, uh, that is in the show notes, but I wanted to give you some background. But without further ado, my conversation with uh, the founder of Charity Water, Scott Harrison. I thought he was kidding about the knee and the mouth. Thing. <laughs> no, no, they not. were real. They were real. <laughs> hey, Scott, it's great to be with you. And uh, I want to just drill down a little bit on your story, but I want to start um, way back when, where okay. you sort of started the story. Um, you've accomplished an awful lot. Um, but it started with some pain. As you said, your family was completely normal until all of a sudden it wasn't and your mom got sick yep. and your roles reversed. Can you tell us, like, as you look back on that now, how did that impact you as a kid? Because when I read biographies and I talk to a lot of leaders, I see that often there's pain in a childhood that does something. It just seems to be a recurring pattern in a lot of leaders who go on to accomplish significant things. So I'm curious whether that played a role for you, or if it did, how did it play a role for you? Yeah, I don't really remember uh, mom being well, except through photo albums. So it happened when I was four. And uh, it, it's interesting, in those photo albums, she was like the super mom. She would take me to the Franklin Institute and the zoo, and there were all of these you know, active mom you know, and me uh, moments. Uh, so I really only remember her being sick. And uh, I, I remember these kind of glimpses of just how weird the disease was because, you know, a carbon monoxide attack, it, it didn't kill her, but it killed her immune system. But it wasn't something that was really medically proven. So there were people that thought she was just crazy. You know, this was in her head. So she would wear these, these, uh, these masks. And I remember uh, we prepared a special room for her. It was a tile bathroom. And my dad and I got tinfoil and we covered 
everything because there might be some varnish you know, left oh. on the door. And she slept in an army cot that was washed in baking soda 20 times. And uh, I remember she, she used to love to read because she was, she was a journalist. And as a child, from this point on, I would have to bake her books in the oven to try to get the smell of the print, you know, that new ink smell out. Um, or we would put them all out in the backyard. So there's this photo I just came across of 100 books in the backyard in the sun, you know, kind of airing out. So I just remember feeling bad for her as a kid uh, in the early days and wanting to be a doctor. So if you'd asked me growing up, I wanted to be a doctor to help mom get well and help people uh, become well. And then I think um, I started to move towards the, you know, the resentful, cynical camp and... You know, uh, I just have spent 18 months writing a book and it's it's caused me to go to some uncomfortable places. And there's there's a moment as a teenager where, uh, so electromagnetic waves made her sick. And I'm like, come on. Yeah. Right? Radio, TV, you just don't want me to watch TV. (laughs) This is like a great excuse not to have a TV in the room. So I remember one night um, I, I kind of creep up uh, to her, the outside of, of her door, of her little bathroom, and I have a, she's gone to sleep, and I put a radio, and I face her, and I turn the volume all the way down. And I just blast her all night with a boombox. And she wakes up deathly sick the next morning. So I had this moment that, okay, she would have never known. Um, I felt awful, obviously, but it, it wasn't in her head, you know? This, this is actually real. So I think, you know, it, it, it morphed from really feeling sad for her, um, questioning the illness, and then just, just being kind of resentful because my life wasn't like other kids' lives and my mom couldn't do what other moms did. And, and my parents were pretty strict, you know, and, and I think that later led to, uh, you know, a, a rebellion. But um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking how hard things were at the time. It was just the normal course of life. You don't know anyone else's life. Right. It was really later that I said, oh, wow, you know, I, I've suffered. Like, my, te- you know, my teenage years weren't normal. Hmm. So you slid into a period of rebellion when you were a teenager into your early 20s. You have that whole decade. Uh, a lot of pastors, a lot of church leaders sitting here and listening as well when we broadcast this. And they've got kids like you sitting in their church right now. Or and, kids of their own. <laughs> yeah, or kids of their own, exactly, <laughs> who are in the process of, like, going down that path. Yeah. Do you remember what tipped you in that direction? Because you were involved. It's not like you quit going when you were 10. You were involved, but you just, it was a, yeah. it was a slippery slope. I think my, my childhood was, was, it was so strict. Um, and, and I just wasn't allowed to do anything. Um, there, I, think, I think actually, you know, now as a father, um, it was the element of fun that was missing. So church felt, as, as I grew older, really like a downer, these set of rules. You can't do all these things. But it wasn't replaced with, hey, let's jump on a plane and go hike Zion National Park. You know, there, right. there was no sense of uh, wholesome adventure, maybe. Um, it was just, oh, you can't do that. You can't, your friends are watching R-rated movies. You can't do it. I remember, you know, R-rated movies were out. PG-13 was out. Like, just, there was, there was this whole list of everything that was out. And these were the things my friends were doing, the things I wanted to do. And because mom was sick, you know, we weren't taking, there was just no fun. So I think I really uh, started to explore fun, but in a, in a not a wholesome way, because I had never known what fun was. And the fun of, of the culture, when I, when I went to public school, 
um, was drugs and drinking and partying and sleeping around, and that's what everybody was doing for fun. And that's really when I started to rebel. It's funny, my parents um, sent me to, uh, so I started out in, in public school, in elementary, and then I went to a Christian school, and when we moved to the country to really try and get her some fresh air, they put me in a Christian school with nine students. And this was in the basement of an Assemblies of God church. And they couldn't afford teachers. So they wheeled out our teachers on these VHS carts. You guys oh. remember those carts? Like oh, yeah. the kind of rubber mats. And, you know, so they'd pop in the VHS and that was science. And we had to wear uniforms. And I was, I was, I was so uh, desperate for any individuality that I bought matching. The uniform was this kind of really almost urine-colored yellow shirt <laughs> and this, this really bad green, you know, just poorly fitting, uh, you know, trousers. So I went and forced them to buy me green and white, but at least I bought them from another store. You know, I just couldn't give the uniform company the satisfaction of, of taking our money. So um, I, I eventually, at the end of that year, said, I'm going to run away from home if this is my education, if VHS is my education. It was just, it was boring, it was easy. And the alternative was a 4,000-person high school. Right. And they saw it coming. They're like, well, okay. And the minute I jumped into that high school, you know, I was surrounded by a whole new set and, and just uh, didn't have the, the strength or the, the foundation to really resist the peer pressure. And I just I dove into the new life. I think you said in your story that 18 was a pivotal year for you when you mm -hmm. turned 18. And that's where you really kind of ran away from everything you grew up with. You got into the whole nightclub scene and just really dove into the deep end. Do you want to talk to us about, like, I mean, some of us, that's our story. But again, this is the very thing that we're trying to uh, help kids through. Mm -hmm. Walk us through your interior dialogue and talk about what, what let you just go down that road? Why was that so attractive to you? You've hinted at it already. And why did you just jump in headlong and leave your faith and how you were raised behind? I don't know that I actually left my faith. I just ah. put all obedience to the side. <laughs> you know, any right. shred of I'm following your faith went to the side. You know, I, somebody took me out to a nightclub in New York City when it was 18 and, you know, three years before I was even allowed in the nightclub. And there was just something so other about mm. it, so decadent, so um, prohibited. You know, it was the thing that I could have never done. And there's a sea of 3,000 people partying. And uh, it just felt like I was home in some strange way. Wow. Uh, you know, having no party, really, for 18 years. And here are people celebrating now. You know, they were celebrating, you could argue, very wrong things, you know, drinking and drugs and, um, you know, promiscuity. But uh, I just, when I moved to New York City, the plan was actually to make my band rich and famous. So I had hair down on my shoulder. Uh, it was a bad luck. Um, the band broke up immediately. And then I just, I just stumbled into this nightclub profession. And I just couldn't believe that you could actually get paid to drink alcohol. I mean, <laughs> you know, from someone that wasn't allowed to drink... I, I basically became a professional drinker. You know, there was a point uh, in, in nightlife where I was getting paid $4,000 a month to drink Bacardi in public. Uh, my partner wow. and I, and another $4,000. Like an endorsement deal. Yeah, right? like, and another $4,000 by Budweiser to have Budweiser on our table in our nightclubs, Man. thinking that other people would want to drink Bud if we were drinking Bud. 
So, I mean, from the outside, this is the life, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, your friends drink for free, you're drinking, you're partying. Um, over time, you know, it, it's, it's so much, I think, like, I, my, my story follows so many biblical cliches. <laughs> it, it was really like the, the prodigal son story. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my own way, and I'm going to just start running in the other direction. And, you know, I wound up 10 years later in the proverbial pig pen and wanted to come home. And I realized that you know, even though I drove a BMW and even though my girlfriend was in the cover of Elle magazine or Vogue or, you know, even though I had the Rolex watch and uh, went to all the best parties and flew around to Fashion Week, I had, I had become this soulless, rotten, sycophantic, you know, spiritually and morally bankrupt person. And I had betrayed the morality and spirituality of, of my youth. And, you know, the foundation was still there. I think the faith piece was still there. I just needed to explore the exact opposite to then um, come back. And it's, it, it, you know, what's great about that story is you get the sense in that parable that he was so far from home, like yeah. the other side of the world. Like if there's like 180 degrees and then he just starts walking back home, you know, almost in the same direction. So that's what happened for me. It just happened very quickly. And I said, I want to I wanna come back and... You know, I want it to be my faith and not the faith of my parents, not the faith that's been uh, force-fed to me. Because I realized there would never be enough. There would never be enough girls. There'd never be enough money. There'd never be enough status. Somebody would always have more, a better watch, a better car, um, you know, planes. And this, it was this insatiable desire. And I just, I, it was like the veil was lifted at this 10-year mark in, in South America on this vacation. Uh, it was almost like the game of musical chairs, where the music stopped and I had nowhere to sit for the first time in my life. Hmm. And I was like, where, you know, where am I? I felt lost and you know, I want to I go find my seat, but my seat isn't here anymore. It's all the way back home. Wow. Uh, now, it's not automatic that you would come back to faith. Um, first of all, there's a lot of people in their 40s and 50s still living the life you describe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people who are raised in a Christian environment, maybe went off the rails for a decade or whatever, maybe cleaned up their life, but didn't ba- end up with Jesus, didn't end up as a Christian. And I'm just curious, there were a lot of, it's not just like, oh, I ran away and now I'm back. Um, why did you not explore other options? I think I, I just started reading the New Testament around this time, and I just discovered Jesus with, uh, with fresh eyes, and it was different hmm. than I had remembered. He was less religious. He was, he was more against. Um, I'm, I'm a very like Enneagram 8, so this kind of need to be against. And I think I've, I've found a new, way of, um, a new way of discovering him that, that fit differently than the rules and religiosity and even some of the hypocrisy that I saw growing up. I mean, he was the ultimate anti-hypocrite. And then there was something around the way that he cared so much for the poor that I really latched on to. And I had done nothing for the poor in 10 years. I had done nothing to give or to serve. It's funny, I read about this in a book, which I'd completely forgotten about, going through old emails. I had actually thrown up one party in a nightclub for a charity. And I used the charity to market the nightclub. And I said, we'll give a percentage of the proceeds we gave 1%, and I'm not sure we even gave 1%. Wow. Not sure we even followed up. So that was my old approach. So I think 
yeah, Jesus felt so radical and so other and so opposite to the way that I had been living my life. And I'm just, I'm such an extreme person. So if, if the opposite of all of these vices was virtue, then Jesus embodied those virtues. Mm. Um, he was not looking for better watches and better cars and social status. Uh, so I just found that, I found that really interesting. So I got to ask you the question. It's a bit of a weird question, uh, but you were pretty successful as a nightclub promoter. What leadership lessons did you learn from the dark side? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I think storytelling. Yeah. I think, uh, so I'm a promoter, yeah. right? And I like throwing parties. I like people celebrating. Um, I did, I did uh, in fact, our whole team does Strengths Finder. One of my strengths is an includer. So I love this kind of like, let's bring everybody together. I'd be the guy up in the DJ booth that would see the couple people not having fun at the party and we'd go buy them a drink or somebody would try Mm. and bring them in. So for 10 years, I was promoting a narrative that said, if you come to our club, if you join a sea of people outside, if you get past the velvet rope, if you're beautiful enough or significant enough, if you come inside and you spend all of your money on alcohol and drugs, then your life has meaning. And I make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was really the narrative. And to keep that going, um, we had to be really creative because it's so easy to get bored. I imagine working at nightclub, you know, the DJ's playing the same songs, the same people turning up. So we would throw these elaborate pool parties and themes. You know, I would go get a thousand beach balls and we would, you know, hire, build lifeguard stands in the club and try and create these things. We'd do pajama parties and make 500 people come in their pajamas you know, in the middle of New York City, just trying to keep it new, keep it fresh, um, so that we don't fall into, oh, it's just another party. We tried to be unexpected. Um, so I think, I think that was one, you know, was, was learning, A, that I am a really good promoter, yeah. and B, you know, it required a lot of creativity to keep the thing interesting for 10 years. I worked at 40 different nightclubs. Wow. You know, imagine just having the same conversation over and over you know, sub the, I mean, yelling over the DJ. I mean, it's, it was pretty painful. Required some <laughs> creativity. So I haven't been to uh, Charity Waters' head office in New York, but I don't know the pajama parties or what, but have you <laughs> taken anything from your nightclub era to what you're doing now? Beautiful design. Uh, our, mm-hmm. when, when we were promoting the clubs, we, we wanted these invitations that went out. There's, there are actually all these themes that... You know, I've never written a book before, and these, I'm starting to kind of find these through lines. This, this word invitation is a big in, word for me, and um, it's certainly in Charity Water's narrative. But we would invite people to come to the party, and we would spend extraordinary amounts on these invitations, trying to make them look really special. So we would carve them out of wood. We would, um, we would print in metal, and these would get mailed out. Wow. And, you know, we thought if the invitation looked special people would think the party was actually special. And most people were just doing generic flyers or, you know, five-by-seven, you know, Kinko's versions. And we would, we always wanted to say, no, no, this is different. When you come into our world, it's going to be more special. And come, you know, it's just this, come, come, come. It's this invitation. So I think, you know, now we get to invite people to a very different party um, of generosity and compassion and empathy and uh, inviting them to bring clean drinking water to the whole world. But I'm still throwing parties, and I'm still inviting people every single day, just in a completely opposite sphere. How did you learn that? 
like how did you learn the importance of design standing out? I'm just interested in sort of the journey that took you to that place because I mean churches are pretty famous for doing a mediocre job, right? It's like, well, we'll save money and we can print in black and white and nobody's really going to notice and it's fine yep. and that paper is cheaper than this paper. So I'm just curious how you figured that stuff out. New York City really helps. Yeah. Living in New York City, yeah. I mean, if it's a city of excellence or you don't live there. You know, companies can't thrive there unless they're, you know, they're performing at a high level. And then in fashion, you know, many of our parties were in fashion. So fashion companies get design. You know, the Yves Saint Laurent's of the world. And I mean, these are, these are companies that value the aesthetic and, you know, the, I mean, fashion companies will invite you to a store opening with a $40 invitation, you know, that is unboxed. And there's just this kind of, there's this grandness to it all. So I, I think uh, I, I just appreciated that. I valued it. I loved beautiful things. You know, as it later came to Charity Water, that became a core piece. Um, and I've, I, I came across a, a piece in the New York Times where Nick Kristoff, the, the journalist, said, you know, Today, toothpaste is being peddled with far more sophistication than all the world's life-saving charities. Hmm. And I think that's, you know, sub in church, right? Toothpaste is being peddled with more sophistication than all the world's churches. Um, it, it's certainly not as bad now, certainly for charities or churches, as it was when I started 11 years ago. But when we looked at other charities, their websites were terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, animated blinking GIFs, nothing was mobile optimized. <laughs> um, I, I read a study once of a huge global charity, and I won't pick on them, um, but they, you know, charities used to communicate using white papers, right? right? Read these statistics about our problem. And they looked at this huge charity, and they found that uh, of all the PDFs and white papers published, 70% had not a single download. 70% of all their work was seen by zero people. And if that was the old way, um, you know, I think branding and design and storytelling and, and images and video would be our way or would be the new way. So let's talk about founding Charity Water. And you did some things differently from the very beginning. I mean, you did direct-to-donor reporting. You let people live track where their gifts were going. You have the hybrid funding model, which we're going to get into. Um, But what were some distinctives? When you look back now on over a decade at Charity Water, what were some things that you're like, wow, that was a great call and this was different? And this helped us bring, you know, clean water to millions more than we would have if we had a bad strategy. Sure. I think in, if you go back to that day one, um, in so many ways, on paper, I would be uniquely unqualified to right. ever do this. Right? No charitable background, no institutional philanthropy knowledge, no hydrology or water knowledge. And, you know, I'd run around Africa with a group of doctors for two years taking pictures. Um, in other ways, I think I was uniquely qualified uh, to actually, you know, get people excited around a movement of clean water um, because of the decade of promoting and all the things that I'd learned and actually the guest list that I'd built. So one of the cool things was when I went to Mercy Ships, I took 15,000 emails with me. And back then, open rates were 100%, right? Like everybody would read everything you sent them. Uh, and they went actually from getting they went from getting invitations to the Prada uh, megastore opening in Soho, New York City, to some of the pictures you saw in that video, like Alfred is suffocating to death on his own face with a tumor. Click here to read more. You know, and some people unsubscribed, of course, and said, I did not sign up for like the, the leprosy party or the tumor party. Um, but, 
But I learned there, there was a really pivotal learning that these stories and these images moved most people to curiosity, uh, an empathetic and compassionate response, and then a, a, a desire to act. So the emails that would come back was, I had no idea this was going on 3,000 miles away. I had no idea that doctors like Dr. Gary Parker were giving up their vacation time and operating for free. I mean, they should be on vacation in the Caribbean. They have the money to do that. And I had no idea that these, these clefts and these tumors and these, these problems existed. How can I help? So I kept hearing a version of how can I help? How can I give? How can I help? How can I give? How can I join you on the ship? So I, I, I brought that into Charity Water and said, um, okay, when stories are told, when people feel connected to problems and solutions, they actually do want to help. They need, they need that guide. They need that bridge. And I say kind of uniquely qualified in some ways because the thing that turned out to be the greatest power is the full lack of experience. Hmm. Because I didn't know how a charity was supposed to run, I sat with a white piece of paper and I asked a bunch of everyday people why they weren't giving to charity and what they would want a charity to look like. What, what would win them over? What would a charity they could trust look like? So what did you so, hear? So I heard that, uh, we were talking about this backstage, 42% yeah. of Americans distrust charities. Yeah. This shocks people, right? No one is more, Ameri no one is more generous than Americans. I mean, we have this heritage of, a cultural heritage of generosity and philanthropy. But almost half the people in the country don't trust the system. Uh, NYU did a, a recent poll, found 70% of Americans believe charities waste money or badly waste money. Wow. 30% said they did the right thing with money. It's so less than a third think charities are good stewards of their donations. So that was the huge market opportunity for me. I wasn't going to go and poach World Vision donors or Samaritan's Purse donors or, you know, save the children. I wanted to reach out to this disenchanted, cynical demographic who didn't trust and who wasn't giving. And, and the biggest problem just kept coming back to money, money, money. And I said, all right, well, what if we could solve this problem by promising that 100% of their money, without exception, would always directly go to water projects? Yeah. Then, oh, wow, if we have two bank accounts, one for the overhead and one for the public funding, then actually money's not fungible either. So we could use technology to track these dollars and $6 and $19 and show people where they, where they went. And you know, part of it was just good timing. We started at the same year as Google Earth and Google Maps. Mm. So Google basically built this free place where we could put every water point up and build the most hyper-transparent charity from day one. If we had 100 wells... Anyone in the, in the public could buy a Garmin GPS device for 50 bucks at Best Buy and go see all 100, or 1,000, or 10,000, or now 28,000. So we've made all that data public. So it was kind of 100%, then proof, then we brought in this branding piece. Okay, well, it also needs to look good. And I, I talk about the branding. So many charities use guilt and shame mm -hmm. to manipulate people into giving. And, you know, I'm 42, so some of you guys around my age might remember those um, the Sally Struthers commercials, you know, from oh, the yeah. 80s. And, like, mm -hmm. they were masterful in their manipulation, right? I mean, the child in slow motion looks up, <laughs> locks eyes with the camera, flies are perfectly landing on the face, <laughs> and then the 800 number stripes up. Yeah. It works. Yep. You give. But you don't want to wear the T-shirt of that charity. <laughs> you don't want to tell your friends about that charity. You want to turn off the TV and run. And... You know, and if I thought about the, the brands that I respected and admired, let's use Nike as an example. 
if Nike was a traditional charity, it would be like Nike saying, hey, America, you are so fat and lazy. <laughs> Turn off the stupid TV, put away the Doritos, go for a run, won't you? Yeah. Think that would work? Um, some days, yes. Okay. But, um... <laughs> but that's, th thankfully, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's not what Nike's done. No, Nike, I, know, I know Nike exactly what you said, mean. Point well taken. Nike said there's greatness within you, yeah. right? You, you can... Yeah overcome impossible odds. Like, you don't have legs, you can run a marathon. Right. You know, lost an arm, you can still win the shot put competition. Right? And they tell these stories it that animate people. makes you believe people. you can do it. Yeah. Greatness is within you. And then people want to turn off the TV and they want to go try it. And then they want to wear that symbol of a yeah. company that believes in them. So we're the same way, except in the greatness is in the form of empathy and generosity. We believe you care deeply. We believe when you see suffering thousands of miles away, that you do connect that those are our brothers and sisters and, and that you do want to reach out and you just need a guide. You need something, a vehicle you can trust to make sure if you give, it's actually going to meet that need. It's actually going to alleviate that suffering. So that's really what we try to do. And the last thing is we just wouldn't send anybody that looked like me over to Africa to drill wells. Um, I'd mm. seen some well-intentioned Westerners, you know, go and try and do it themselves. We just believed for any of this work to be sustainable, it had to be led by the locals. Yep. Um, it had to be Ethiopians in Ethiopia and, um, you know, Cambodians in Cambodia that were the ones actually leading their communities and their countries forward. So our role would be to get people to care about an issue that does not affect them, um, move them deeply to compassion and empathy, get them to give as generously as they're able to, and then give all that money to the locals and raise up their organization. So over the years, we've bought drilling rigs. We've bought, you know, hundreds of trucks. We've helped hire hydrologists. We want our local partners to get the credit. Success is Charity Water spending $100 million in a country and me going and no one have any idea who I am hmm. or the organization, but knowing and celebrating our local partner. So we, we really mean that. How did you or how have you broken down the suspicion, the cynicism that floats around? Because that's huge. I mean, 42% of Americans yeah. don't trust charities. And basically, if I, if I understand your story right, you're like, we're not going to try to poach people from other charities. We're actually going to try to reach the non-givers. Mm -hmm. um, how did you break down that suspicion with them? The 100% model really helped. Yeah. Just being able to say, this is the bank account where your money's going. KPMG audits the 100% model every year. Um, I remember on day one, and this is, I think I can say this in this group, but um, the, the, the day one was a party in a nightclub because I had no better idea what to do. <laughs> and I got some friends to donate a nightclub and I threw my 31st birthday party. I gave everyone open bar for only one hour. <laughs> and uh, and they, you know, they came in and, and everybody tossed 20 bucks in this big plexi cube. And I remember that night, uh, a drug dealer, a guy who sold marijuana, comes to that party and he puts $500 in. And he says to me, this is the first charitable gift I've made in my lifetime. But I know where this money is going. Wow. And to us, like, that's not my market, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was like, wow, that, we're on to something. We've discovered yeah. something in this package that, you know, that water was an issue that moved this guy. And, you know, he knew where that money was going. And that took him from jaded and cynical to trust. Really? And so we just kept seeing that over and over again. And every time, that's why closing the loop is so important. This last piece of proof of, of showing people where their money went. If people could see that it actually had gone and done something, we wound up creating this virtuous cycle where they, they became a little less cynical. Oh, wow, I'll try that again. 
And they would give more, not just to us, but to other organizations. They would trust more organizations. What's really fascinating to me is you've got a dual funding method. So mm -hmm. if Joe Public gives you $10, $100, $1,000. All those spring members, 100%. Yes. All the spring, 100% goes into, it goes overseas. But clearly you have an office. I mean, your headquarters is in New York. You have a whole separate stream for funding your overhead. Can mm -hmm. you break that down? Well, I'll go back to um, the origins of it. So it was really, really hard in the beginning because effectively you're starting two churches or two you know, competing organizations. And I was living on a closet floor in New York City at the time. I had no money because I'd given all the money to Mercy Ships and the people I'd met along the way. And I, nightclub promoters are not good at saving money. So <laughs> there was, uh, I just was really starting at kind of negative. I was starting at negative 30,000. I actually came back to a tax bill. Um, as well, because my partner had a long story, but um, it was it was a it was a really bad time to start a charity, homeless, in debt. Um, but I just had this vision. I mean, I, I was going to work for the rest of my life to you know build a movement of generosity and compassion and get these people excited about giving and redeem them in the act of giving, and bring clean water to the entire world and actually see a day on Earth when every human had clean water to drink, regardless of where they were born. So in the beginning, I'm running around with this laptop, and I had the advantage of taking 50,000 photos over those two years in Africa. So I was showing, not telling. You know, it's one thing if I just told you guys, um, hey, there's this doctor called Gary Parker, and you know, he helps kids with big tumors. You're like, I've never seen a kid with a big tumor. It's another to see it. Um, it's another to, if I talk about dirty water, um, it's another to see a child drinking brown, viscous mud and then throwing up on herself when she does it. It's just, it's a different visceral um, kind of disruption. Uh, so I had the advantage of all these photos. I had the advantage of being an eyewitness, right? I wasn't working for your organization and like taking your photos and then trying to go out and sell it. I'm like, I was there. I was in this village. Here's what she told me. And the power of that was, uh, was really, I don't think I knew how powerful it was at the time because my friends are just going to clubs and working at Chanel and Gucci you know, and, and here I was in Liberia, living with these, uh, living with this suffering, and bringing yeah. about the stories. So um, I had to determine in every possible donor meeting: is Kerry cynical, or does he want to pay for my overhead? Right. <laughs> so right. I'm literally just making a different ask: Will you help me pay for employee number one, or oh, Kerry, I've got this great model. 100% is going to go straight. To the projects, do you want to help someone? So I'm constantly trading. So you can imagine which bank account grew faster, <laughs> right? We, we wound up a year and a half in. We'd, we'd raised a couple million dollars just in our first 18 months. And we had a moment a year and a half in. Um, we had gotten up to a few, a handful of employees. I think we had eight or nine employees. And we had $881,000 in the bank account for water projects. And we were about to miss payroll in the other account. Now, we had missed payroll before. I'd skipped my check and mm -hmm. said, hey, guys, don't cash it yet. You know, hold on to those checks. You know, uh, it's got a couple more days, couple more days. So, yeah. so basically, the business model wasn't working. And yeah. people had told me it wasn't going to work. Uh, when I told them about this business model, they said, this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard. Separate your bank account? Like, who wants to pay for your overhead, dude? And um, so they were right at this moment. And what was interesting was, Having you know, a bank account with no money in it and then $881,000, we had a few weeks left of funding, but um, the advice I was getting from people was, hey, go and borrow against the 881 grand, the, the water project money. And uh, you know, you gotta pay your people. These people have left for-profit jobs to work for you. And um, just write an IOU. You know, money's fungible, this happens all the time. 
And I remember just being so outraged by that idea. If we borrowed one penny, our integrity would be compromised. There'd be a crack in the foundation. We could never be trusted again. We might as well hang our heads in shame and, you know, mm -hmm. all just, you know, quit. So I was just going to wind the organization down, send out all $881,000, and build as many water projects as we could, and then say, hey, it didn't work. Yeah. At that moment, I was praying, and I was praying with, if I'm honest, with very little faith. And uh, at that time, a complete stranger walks into the office, and he was an internet entrepreneur, and sits with me, and he's, uh, he was British, let me know that he was an atheist, which I thought was interesting. And, uh, you know, he was super cynical, and he said, I don't give to charities, and I don't trust charities. And I'm like, Michael, yes, this is, you're my mm -hmm. demographic. Like, this is exactly what I am doing, is trying to win people like you. Here's the business model. And I remember just being really transparent with what was working and what wasn't. Like, I'm running out of rope here. Um, we've run out of rope. And he said, well, let me, let me think about your problem. So a couple days later, it's midnight. I remember working, uh, and I, I'm on my laptop, and I get this email. And he said, hey, I really enjoyed meeting you. Um, check your account. I just wired a million dollars into your overhead account. So we went from completely insolvent to over a year worth of capital. And he said, I believe in you, you need more time. Wow. And with that extra time, so there would be no charity water with that. So I, by the way, I talk everybody out of the 100% model that I can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am not suggesting um, that this was right for us and the problem that we're trying to solve. That said, I am mentoring a couple social entrepreneurs who are making this work um, with the playbook, but it was incredibly difficult. With that extra time, as much as it was the money, it was the fact that he believed in me. And yeah. He believed in the model. And I was so energized by that that I went out and I was much more boldly asking other people for overhead. So today, um, in the two bank accounts, 130 families pay for the overhead, 80 staff in New York, the office, all the flights, um, and a million donors are getting a pure play. Hmm. where 100% is going out. Now, in that group of 130 families, it's the founders of Facebook and Twitter and Spotify and WordPress and Pandora. It's, you know, executives at Apple Computer. It's venture capitalists. It's Depeche Mode pays for our overhead. I mean, it's, wow. you know, football <laughs> quarterbacks and actors. And it's kind of this motley group of friends and business leaders and entrepreneurs who say, we don't actually want to fund water projects. We want to fund your staff. They could be making more money. They're making sacrifices. So it's, it's actually really, it's really worked. I want to talk about that group because most of us in this room, probably, you know, you don't have the founders of Twitter or Facebook sitting in your church, but you got some people who have done well in business or in the marketplace. And a lot of pastors don't feel particularly well equipped. Frankly, a lot of leaders don't feel particularly well equipped on how they can actually go and court that kind of favor. And if you were to give us the names of some of those investors, I don't know whether it's private or public, we would know their names. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are, they are big, big players in Silicon Valley and the global economy. But they seem to love to say, yeah, other people will pay for water. We are going to build this amazing organization. What are some guidelines that you have or what are some insights you have on... What motivates people like that mm -hmm. to buy in? There's a one word, excellence. They're mm. attracted to excellence. So the people in all of these companies have gotten to where they are by hyper-valuing excellence. So the very thing that, And they will say this. They will say yeah, this. Yeah. I've actually heard this. I, I just want to tease this out for a second and then let you go deep. So the very thing that a charity would normally be criticized mm -hmm. for, 
Oh, our office is, can't look too Your good. office is yeah. too big. Mm-hmm. You have too many TVs. How much do those TVs cost? Mm-hmm. Uh, wait a minute. What kind of flight did you take? Are you mm-hmm. not flying at the back, like at mm-hmm. the lowest rate? The very thing that the donors would criticize is exactly what these people want to fund. Sort of. Okay. Go there. So they still want us flying at the back of the plane. Okay, they do. <laughs> flying in the back of the plane. Gotcha. Uh, it's interesting. So Charity Water has raised a third of a billion dollars now. We've never bought a business class ticket for myself or anyone else. So that value of stewardship actually is really important to people. Now, believe wow. me, I'm letting conferences fly me business class. If Google's flying me to Europe, like on their dime, I have no right. problem lying in a bed. Um, right, but, but I don't want to use. <laughs> but I don't want to use. I actually don't want to use those. I'll also use air miles from a donor. So I'll sure. have a donor in that one thirty. He's like, I've got six million American miles. Um, you need, you know, you need a bed. Call me up. So I'm happy doing it outside of the organization. Right. So there is. We were talking about this backstage. No, this There's is good. It's, this is fascinating. Like I could drive a sixty thousand dollar Volvo, but not a twenty thousand dollar Mercedes. Right. Sixty five thousand dollar Acura. Right or Toyota, not a twenty-three thousand dollar BMW. So it's it's real. The we are you know in the rebranding of um, of charity. We, that is actually still a sensitivity today. Hmm. Um, they so are, where do they want to see excellence then? They want to see. So they don't mind the. It's it's even it's it's actually trickier than this because yeah. so our office is unbelievable in New York City. People walk into our office and say it's nicer than Facebook's. Uh, we have 23,000 square feet. We have a very generous landlord who came to Ethiopia, took us under his wing 11 years ago, and we, we pay a fraction of what we would. But in the build-out of the office, right, it was going to be about $2 million to take a, a raw, huge shell and turn it into our headquarters, you know, all glass, TVs. We couldn't just spend the $2 million, even if we had it. So I went out and I pitched contractors, plumbers, architects, Samsung, who did $50,000 of TVs. Hmm. Uh, WeWork, who gave us furniture. So we put this group together of 30 people who donated over $1.2 million for the build-out. So when someone walks into our office, every person is given a card that says, looks nice, huh? Looks really nice. Here are the 30 companies that contributed. Wow. So we go immediately to this kind of Robin Hood, right? Right. Charity Water is happy for us to have giant flat-screen TVs as long as Samsung paid for it. Uh-huh. Right? We're happy to have tons and tons of glass and the best, you know, steel case furniture as long as somebody else subsidized or gave us. I'll give you a funny example. We have, we have this gorgeous shuffleboard court in our office, like one of those shuffleboard tables, and then a pool and a ping pong table. And there's this company in New York called Blatt Billiards that's been around since the 1800s. I'm like, call them up and ask them to donate. I bet no one, no charity has ever asked for a pool table before <laughs> in, the, in the multi-hundred-year history. And they wound up giving it to us like 30 cents in the dollar for our Man. staff. So that, that it, you, you kind of have to do both. You can't just spend money. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's so gray and so nuanced. There's a poverty mentality that is pervasive in so many charities yep. that is wrong. But you also can't, Andy Stanley gave a talk once at Catalyst called The Tension is Good, you know? So you also can't spend all of this money and, and then be seen as a bad steward. So you kind of have to live in that middle of trying to do, get, trying to build and design really beautiful things, but without spending a ton of money on it. So even though some of these investors are worth hundreds of millions and probably a few billions, mm-hmm. um, they're still looking for that kind of accountability and that kind of responsibility. The in the scrappiness, because well. all yeah. their businesses were like that. Yep. You know, when LinkedIn started or when you know, Apple started, 
right? There was a scrappiness. I mean, people were building computers in garages. So they, they want that, um, and, and I want that. Yeah. I mean, 11 years in, we, want, we don't want to take that for granted. You know, I'll, I'll pitch, I'll write an email to save $1,261 on software. And I'll actually feel, you know, you could argue that's, that's not a good use of my time, but now it involves a new company. And, and I think that's worth our time to constantly be pitching and asking people to donate not only money, but also their products or their services. And I, I want you to hear this the right way. How did you get into those circles? I mean, meeting the CEO of Spotify, the founder of LinkedIn, um, you know, people like that, that is not easy to do. It doesn't happen to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get into those circles? So our first uh, tech investor who gave us a million dollars was from Silicon Valley. So that mm. helped open up a couple doors. Um, they, were just these, they were just these really fortunate um, connections. Um, I knew a photographer for National Geographic who happened to know someone who was high up at Google. Came in the office, sat with me. I, you know, I, imagine me on a laptop giving somewhere between five and 10,000 presentations, you know? Yeah. Just, I do 18 presentations a day. So I'm just clicking next, next, next. And this Google exec said, well, why don't I sponsor you a TED? So then I go to TED and I'm sponsored because I couldn't afford a, you know, eight or $10,000 ticket. And then I, there was one guy at a bar once uh, at TED and someone said, you need to go tell him about your charity. So I walk up to this guy uh, and uh, I had an iPod, iPod Touch at the time with our new PSA and headphones. And at the bar, I get him to put on my headphones and watch our 60-second PSA. And he puts it down and he said, that's one of the most amazing things. So the next thing I know, I'm speaking at Google. And then I met someone from Twitter. And then I invited myself to speak at Twitter when there were 28 employees at the company. And then I built some of those relationships early. Then I invited myself to speak at Facebook on University Avenue. How do hey, you, can how I do come you and invi- tell the story? Okay, how did you invite yourself? You to- just say, hey, can I, 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 uh, I so just got back from... you're talking to Jack Dorsey, and you're like, Can I hey. come talk to your employees? Uh, sorry, if you're Jack Dorsey, you want stimulating outside speakers. I have speakers mm-hmm. come into Charity Water all the time that have nothing to do with philanthropy. You know, Simon Sinek will come in, or Brene Brown will come in, or... You know, Adam Grant, or, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to know some of these people in the cir- speaking circuit, but they're not talking about water. They're not talking about philanthropy. Yeah. I actually want the, the, the infusion of creativity. So, so when I can come in to, tw- you know, to Square or Twitter or Google or LinkedIn and give a talk, I'm actually doing them a favor. Yeah. I'm exposing them to a different way of disruptive thinking or a new business model or, you know, it's out-of-the-box thinking. Um, and then also giving uh, people a chance to be to be generous and to give. So I don't think of that as like my handout. Hey, can I please, please come speak? I'm like, I'm I'm going to come tell a great story, and I'm going to try and make everybody at Twitter cry and make them feel something <laughs> that they feel something really deeply and want to help us. Wow. What turns groups of people other than misspending? Because we all have one or two people who probably have done disproportionately well who could do a lot more than they're doing in our organizations, in our yeah. churches. What rubs them the wrong way other than misspending? Well, they don't like false humility mm. at all. Um, and they define they, that. What do you mean by false humility? They don't like uh, subserviency. You know, when you're, oh, I'm just the pastor. I'm just the charity guy. You know, that kind of, you're so much better than me. They want to be giving to peers. Right. You know, so they, uh, and, and it's, you can be humble, but you can also crush it. Yeah. And you can have excellence in your business. So when I'm meeting these people, it doesn't feel like it's a handout. I'm inviting them to join us. And sometimes mm. they say no. 
And it's funny, I just, I was with someone worth a few billion dollars last night in San Francisco. And it was my fourth time with him. And he finally said he would join the 129 families last night. He's just been watching us. It hadn't been the right time. So you, A, I think you play a long game. And I never groveled. I'm just, hey, I'm, I was like, hey, we're still doing it. And, you know, we, so we, we're now me. giving... Go ahead, pitch me. Because I, I, I won't say who it was, but he was a hero of mine. I know that. Pitch me. Well, I, I, I didn't have to. It was just storytelling. Okay. I was just catching up with here's where the organization is. And we had eight, you know, eight up years and we had a down year. And I was just talking to him like a, a, a business peer. And then we started doing a pivot. And now we're finding growth again. And here are the challenges. You know, it's not, hey, could, you know, I'm not flipping through a proposal with him. It's just, and here's my biggest challenge at the moment, which I said, is my water, the spring, the water side is growing faster again than the overhead side. Yeah. So I'm allocating more and more of my time from growing 130 families to 140 families, 150 families, to which he said, I'll be your next family. But it, 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 it was, it's kind of that organic. Now, he had some awareness of this. He'd been watching us. It just yeah. hadn't been the right time. But it's a long game. That's the other thing. I think you have to be really careful not to write people off. Mm. Uh, I have been so surprised. I mean, it, I've gotten a lot of no's. Yep. I mean, in the early days, 90% of the meetings were no's uh, because it just wasn't real. Right. It, it wasn't safe. There's, have this people idea. like to be safe. Yeah. And I've written so many people off um, early on, like, oh, well, they're just, it's a no. It's a, it's a forever no. It's not a forever no. Yeah. A lot of people, it's just a not now or I need to see you do a little more. Right. I need to see if you're still doing this. So many people now in year 12 will tell me, they thought I'd be working at Facebook by now. Yeah. They thought I'd be, you know, taking the job, starting and you know, trying to, to go get rich and start the billion dollar company. And just now, they're like, this dude is still driving a Kia Sorento <laughs> and he's still like, you know, in a 1200 square foot apartment with his two kids and he's still flying coach. We actually want to help him now because there's just a growing credibility. You know, it's like the long obedience in the same direction. You just yeah. pick up more and more people the more you stay the course and the more you don't compromise your values or your integrity. And... Uh, so I now I'm just, I, I assume every no is potentially a later. Hmm. So you've scaled massively. If you look at, and we'll talk about the blip in a few, 2015 was not a great year for mm -hmm. you personally, not a great year for charity. Well, well it was in, in retrospect, didn't feel that way. Um, what have been some keys to scaling as you've seen this kind of growth? Yep. Um, you guys know Don Miller and his yep. stuff? So he put language to what, we've been doing intuitively for a long time. This idea of, you know, movements grow when people feel like they really own the movement and they're not owned by the organization, let's say. Hmm. So I, for years, I'd been saying Charity Water is not our story, it's their story. And then I would talk about our volunteers, I would talk about our donors, I would talk about our local partners, I would talk about our fundraisers, you know, nine-year-olds giving up their birthdays, strangers moved by the act of a nine-year-old giving up their birthday. So it was always look at them, look at them, look at them, look at them, never look at us. So Don has given language to this. He said, you know, you're the guide. You're not the hero in the story. And I'm like, that's exactly it. We've been the guide for 11 years. And we are celebrating all the heroes around us, the 800 people that work for Charity Water in uh, 20 countries now, leading their communities forward. They're the real heroes. So we are so intentional to never position charity water. Like, yo, we're awesome. We're drilling wells. We're saving lives. We're like, no, no. Our community of a million generous supporters are resisting the apathy that, that would be so easy to succumb to with an issue like this. And they are giving of their time and their talent and their money and their birthdays. Look at them. Be inspired by that. 
And then that money is going to our local partners in Ethiopia. Our drilling partners in Ethiopia work 29 out of 30 days every month. There's eight and a half months of the year where you can drill, and the rest is the rainy season when they can't. So they maximize, they take one day off every month to maximize the amount of people they can help when it's eight months and it's not raining. So we tell those stories all the time and, and really see our role as, as the guide. So I think that has been, I think that's actually fundamentally different than how most organizations just instinctively behave. That they're the hero. They look at donors as a means to the end. I mean, I'll talk to charity CEOs. If they, if they had one donor who was reliable, they'd rather get rid of everybody else. I mean, donors are a pain in the butt. We love our donors. Like the whole <laughs> mission is engaging people, winning back their trust, bringing them to the table of generosity, and then allowing them to be redeemed in the process and living more unselfish lives that, that have more purpose and meaning. At the end of that video, you cast a huge video or a huge vision for the future. Like the day when every single yeah. human being on earth um, has got clean water. So the challenge with that, of course, is it's going to require scale. Mm -hmm. And you've been experimenting with the spring and mm -hmm. monthly or annual recurring revenue. That's a big challenge for churches as well. What, tell us about that and the difference that, like, how do you cultivate repeat donors? Because that's a challenge for all of us. So I'll go back. We have a little time for this. I'll go back in just the story. So we had eight years of consecutive growth, 269, 16, 23, 28, 35, 45. Million. Yeah, each year. And in, our, in that $45 million year, we gave 1 million people clean water in that year alone. I think it works out to 2,800 people every day of the year. Wow. The next year, we were down 9 million. We did 35 or 36. And we helped 800,000 people get clean water. And what happened, uh, part of it was economy-related. We had two huge donors that didn't repeat. One company laid off 10,000 employees. The other donor's stock tanked 40% and just said, I, you know, we like you guys. We're just going to pause this year. So I go through this existential crisis. I try and quit. I call up all my board members and say, I've tapped out. You know, I've reached the limit. I was unable to lead us to nine consecutive years of growth. And I'll stay with the organization. I'll just reinvent my role. Let's hire a professional CEO. So we start interviewing CEO firms. The funny thing is I tell my, my exec team this, and we were going into Q4, and they're like, dude, get back to work. Stop, <laughs> stop whining. You know, there's no way we're going to let you do this in, in Q4. And actually, you know, my, um, my chief water officer said, dude, you're burned out, and why don't you take a month off in January with your family and see how you feel, and we'll support you if you want to come back. So I wound up, uh, a, a donor gave us this beautiful house uh, high above Shasta Lake in California, like a 10-bedroom retreat house that miraculously nobody was booking for the month of January. He's like, well, you can have it, you know, you, your wife, and your kid. And uh, we get out there. Um, day two, my wife finds out we're pregnant with our second. So she's super grumpy because she was looking forward to drinking wine throughout the whole month. <laughs> it then rains so hard that month in California. Rains more than it had in two decades. We're in our own weather system, so it's hailing where we are. We can't see the beautiful lake at the bottom. <laughs> There's snow and hail. The house starts leaking. You know, so we're running around with buckets in like this beautiful place. It was like a, I don't know, like a metaphor for how I was feeling. And uh, I just remember being, it was three and a half weeks. We talked about this backstage because yeah. you had your own moment. I did. Um, it was, I just was bored. And I didn't know what was next. And I, I had enough time to think through the problem and think to actually try and solve the problem. And I said, you know what? What got us here won't get us there. 
it's, you know, some version of cross, crossing the chasm or finding your next kind of S-curve up or, or pivoting. And I said, the, the problem is we've built a one-time, non-repeatable donation revenue business. Yeah. And the birthdays are great, guys. I mean, you saw it's an inspiring idea. And you should all give up a birthday if you can. It's, it's fantastic. I've done eight birthdays. The, it works. People love giving your birthday. But the average person does one. I think we saw 2% of people repeat a birthday. Okay? So you do your birthday and you're like, okay, I built my well or I raised my you know, few hundred bucks. People actually were taking the birthday idea and doing it for education the next year or a justice issue or a health issue. So the birthday idea was going viral but not benefiting us, not the repeat. So I would just have to keep doing more speeches and we would have to just keep fighting more and more birthdays and churning them. Same thing with the one-time donations. You know, somebody hears about Charity Water, goes online, gives 100 bucks. Well, that's great, but you gotta go replace that person and then add on that to grow. So as I looked at the businesses that I, I really admired and were ex- succeeding, it was the Netflixes of the world. Yeah. It was the Spotify's of the world. It was the Dropboxes. Learned that the average American has 10 subscriptions. And we pay for these things because we receive value, right? We're watching Netflix. We are storing our images with a Dropbox. We're listening to music on Spotify. And I just thought up in the mountain, like, well, what if we could create a subscription program for pure good where 100% of whatever people could give gets directly passed on to those in need. And then we'll have to figure out how to innovate to keep that community engaged to storytell. That's really all I had. As you guys know, the sponsor a child model has been around for a long time, but we never had that. We never had that cute kid who could write you letters over eight years. Because really, we're going into a bunch of new countries. We're funding $65 bio sand filters in Cambodia and $280,000 you know, gravity-fed systems in Rwanda and $12,000 wells in Ethiopia. So we had new people getting clean water. So we come back and we, we launched that video, um, which is a 20-minute video. And I was, I was actually the only person in the entire organization that thought it was a good idea. Yeah, like, I mean, t- t- talk about the pushback you got. Like, like, the attention span of people is like a bumblebee these days, you know? <laughs> you're gonna, sorry, you're going to release a 20-minute web video. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm like, well, it takes that long to tell the story and to move people into any sort of, you know, like I can't do it in three minutes. I can't move people into any meaningful emotional connection or even understand what Charity Water is about in three minutes. So we do this. We made the thing for 50 grand. Uh, It was all just archival footage. And we released it. And, you know, it it just worked. People started sharing it. Um, What was crazy is people were joining the spring at minute eight, we don't even talk about water, I think, until minute nine. <laughs> so we're like, and, and how many views now, two years over later? 10, over 10 million. 10 million views. Wow. Um, so that, that, was, that, that turned out to kind of be the beginning of the spring. And then it started spreading around the world. And it was cool seeing people in Africa start giving to the spring. And people in Bulgaria. And, and now it's, uh, we, last week we added our 100th country in the community. So that pivot to subscription, um, we, that next year when we built it, we were up like you know, 3%. Last year, our first year of spring, we were up 37%. So we did 50 million last year. This year, we think we're going to do over 70 million, 65 or 70 million dollars, powered by that community of people showing up month in, month out. And the average is actually 30 bucks. So we have people giving 100 a month. We have a bunch of college students giving 10. And the stories that come in of, of people in their 90s giving their pension is amazing. We hear people canceling HBO. They're like, you know what? I'd rather give you the money every month in HBO. So we're hearing people cancel these valuable premium brands 
to be in the spring. What we've started doing is creating unique content just for that community. So we're sending camera crews, and camera crews meaning two people, um, around the world to highlight the work that spring members are funding. So you might go into the gravel and sand factory in Cambodia and learn how a bio sand filter is made, or go out with the drilling team in Ethiopia and meet the people who are actually getting these 30s and 50s a month and putting them to work. So I think that's, that, that's been transformative to the business. I basically never left because I got so hmm. busy building that and trying to pivot the entire uh, model that you know, now I'm in year 12 and, and enjoying it a lot. You told me you recovered from burnout in three and a half weeks, <laughs> which, which is enviable. I wish I had. Um, I, think, I think the big, the big learning there was I had way too much of my identity in the numbers. Um, and, you know, and, and, it's, and it's even a little trickier maybe than a for-profit CEO because our numbers, my salary doesn't change. If we do three, 30 million or 50 million or 70 million, like I don't drive a nicer car. Um, it's the people out there that get clean water. So I really did feel like I had let people down by our, you know, my inability to grow the organization and continue impacting more lives. So I took that pretty hard. You know, I had a conversation with my dad, and he's like, son, I've been in business 30 years. Like, it doesn't always go up and to the right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, think of any business that has a linear, you know, graph up and to the right. It just doesn't happen. He said, did you compromise any of your values? I'm like, no. You know, well, did you have integrity as an organization? I'm like, yeah. I said, dad, outside of the numbers, our down year was actually the best year for programs and sustainability and all this other innovative stuff that just didn't translate to in that way to people getting directly clean water. And he's like, well, let's go back to work. Oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> Any of you are burning out, let's go back to work. Um, <laughs> what, are, what are some, some habits, rhythms, and disciplines in your personal life that maybe are different in the last few yeah. years? So I'm taking more before. time. I am taking yeah. more time off. Um, I'm trying to go... I have two kids now, two and four, uh, so yeah. I'm trying to travel less. I'm starting to take my four-year-old with me. I just put him in a, I gave a church talk in Sacramento a couple months ago, and uh, I flew him out there, and he's, he's almost four, and I put him in the middle of the crowd, and I'm like, you have to be really quiet, okay, for 30 minutes. And 10 minutes in, I hear, Daddy! <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that's actually one, you know, I, I would hope, again, in the sense of fun and adventure, that maybe I didn't have, I would hope to just bring my kids along. I mean, it's amazing. I've been to Ethiopia 30 times. Wow. I've been to 69 countries now. You know, I mean, the experiences that the Charity Water has, has really afforded me have been so rich. I want to pass that on to my kids. You know, Vic, my wife, has been to Ethiopia 12 times. You know, she's been to many of these countries with me. So I think that's one rhythm that I'm excited to as they're a little older is actually to take them with me. Um, not because I need him to be a charity CEO or, or pass it down, but I just want to give him a, a love of, of adventure and travel and fun. And, you know, you can have good, clean fun experiencing new things uh, around the world. Um, I live really close to the office. So I, I live in a, a, you know, a much smaller place um, because of proximity, but I walk to work in seven minutes. So with the travel, you know, I'm, I'm home in the morning and night whenever I'm, I'm in New York. Sometimes I'll schedule like a nine o'clock dinner after the kids go to bed in the neighborhood, but that's really, that's family time. Uh, so I love, you know, I love being there every morning. I love taking them to school, picking them up. Um, I, I live so close to work that sometimes, you know, a lunch meeting will cancel on me at, you know, 11.45 and I have a noon lunch and I'm on the playground at noon. 
Yeah. So I'm just like, where are you guys? You know, I'll meet <laughs> you. And I can run out and use that hour, hour and a half block to be with family. So that really helps um, take some of the burden away from the travel. You also mentioned that um, you've released a lot more. Mm-hmm. That a lot was landing on your desk. Now it's not anymore. Can you give us, just walk us through um, how and maybe an example of some things that you're no longer doing? We were talking about this backstage. I mean, the tendency is, you know, to both, I think so many leaders are both at 30,000 feet, you know, so I'm spending so much of my time five and 10 years out and what, what giving looks like, what storytelling looks like. And then there's a burned out light bulb that I get really upset about in the office. Yeah. Like, and how am I the one that needs to see this, right? There's 80 people. No one else saw the light bulb? <laughs> it's been burned out for three days now. I'm just waiting, you know? So you're, you know, you, you kind of go, or like the leg on that chair is broken. Right. Um, so I, I, I still kind of live in, you know, because of the excellence. Like, I want, I'm thinking about a visitor coming in looking at a burned out light bulb. Yeah. Like, that's symbolic to me. Mm-hmm. If people are going to walk by a burned out light bulb, you know, what else might be wrong in the organization? Yeah, so I'm always, I'm always trying to just put that, like instill that value culturally, you know, constantly instill excellence. Excellence actually is a value at Charity Water, and it's, it's one of our isms. So, um, yeah, that's one. What was the question again? No, uh, <laughs> other things you may have let go. You no, said let go. you've okay, really so, empowered the team. Sure, and I hired, uh, well, I, I empowered a COO um, who yeah. just takes so much more off the plate. Um, and fewer amazing, amazing woman named Lauren. She's been with me for seven years now. Yeah, and she's doing the one-on-ones. She's doing the yeah. performance reviews. I'm just not great at that. You know, sitting in a one-on-one with me is is bad experience for you, honestly. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> me too, but it's a worse experience for you. My, my brain just doesn't really, uh, isn't really wired like that. So she is, and she loves it. And, you know, it's a great partnership. I also have an amazing uh, partner who's been with me for six years now, um, a guy called Christoph, and he runs all of the water programs in 26 countries. So he sits over that whole team. So I'm really out um, these days raising money to pay for it all mm-hmm. <laughs> and to pay for the staff and, and working on the overhead side. Um, Lauren's really kind of running the day-to-day ops, and then Christoph is running the whole team, taking this money, making sure we're doing the very best with it around the world, making sure the projects are sustainable, of high quality, uh, auditing, making sure that the money's being spent properly. So we really have these key players where I can do more of the stuff that brings me life and that I'm, you know, that I'm better at. Hmm. Any final word for the leaders who are gathered? Um, my, my favorite, uh, I actually end the book with this, my favorite kind of saying or um, quote these days is something I came back to 10 years ago, a guy that was working with me was walking past the New York bodega and he snaps this photo. And it was a rabbinic text, and it says, do not be afraid of work that has no end. And, you know, the first time I, it didn't resonate with me at all Mm. at that point in the life cycle. And, you know, of course, the work is going to end because um, we are going to have uh, a day when everybody gets clean water. But now I've really come to embrace that because if your work is in the service of others, you know, if it's a work of compassion and unselfishness and if you are looking actively to alleviate the suffering you see around you, it is never-ending, yeah. right? It is a legacy. Like, it went, and, and I would say when we solved the water crisis collectively with a bunch of great people that are, that are all working on this around the world, we're not going to drop the mic and try and become millionaires. Yeah. I don't imagine my team, however big it is, saying, okay, great, now we're going to go work at Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to take everything we learned and focus it on a different problem. Maybe it's a justice issue. Maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's shelter. 
but we would hope to take our whole community and everything we've learned and say, okay, great, water's done. Who else is suffering that doesn't need to be? So I really love that kind of, uh, that idea of, of, of the never-ending work and the embrace of that, as long as it's work in the right direction. You know, if you're a workaholic, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, filling up nightclubs to get people drunk, you know, maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe a little less rewarding or less exciting to, to get so in. Good. Well, Scott, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Scott Harrison. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, what do you think of live podcasts? That one was a lot of fun, and I think they have a, an entirely different dynamic. I think I might do more of those. I'd, I'd love to hear your comments. Head on over to the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 219. That's where you can get links to everything that we talked about in the show. Also learn more about Scott and Charity Water. Pick up his new book, Thirst, which is uh, almost guaranteed to be a bestseller. And I love my time with Scott. You can also learn more about our new partners too. So uh, PushPay actually sponsored this summit and you can learn more about digital giving and get your church online at pushpay.com. And also check out Remodel Health. Wouldn't it be great to pump back 34% in savings on your healthcare costs into the mission of your church? That would be amazing. So head on over to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry and uh, find out what they can do for you. So we are back next week with a fresh episode. It is a, uh, well, pretty exciting month, to be honest with you. Who have we got? Well, next week, I've got Rachel Cruz. She is uh, just a fascinating person. I've followed her for years. Uh, she's a speaker and author. She's Dave Ramsey's daughter. And she talks about what her dad taught her about money, how to teach your kids about money, and the top financial issues people struggle with. And as always with Rachel, it is never boring. Here's an excerpt from next week's episode. Having to go buy clothes for school. So let's just make this into a teachable moment. And it's not this big budget camp on the weekend that you're sitting with your kids and trying to like force them to do all this crazy money stuff. It's just part of life and they will learn it and pick up on it. And I'll also say too, with parenting that more is caught than taught. Yeah. And so your kids are watching your habits as parents as well and how you interact with money. Okay, so that's next week on the podcast. Also this month, we've got Patrick Lencioni, uh, Levi Lusco, and then uh, Max Lucado as well. Do you know Max has written over 120 books? Yeah, it's crazy. I talked to him about that. So it's gonna be a, a really, really fun fall. I'm so excited for it. Thank you guys. Thank you for rating the podcast. Thanks for your reviews. We read every single one of them. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you this fall on the road. If you're going to be in one of the cities I'm in, uh, traveling between now and really early December, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.